you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 26, reading down through the end of, I think it's 46. As you turn there and find your place, let me tell you where you are chronologically, that Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has just left the upper room. Uh, He has prayed the high priestly prayer, washed their feet, celebrated the Lord's Supper, And now he's on the Mount of Olives, and he's in a particular uh, olive grove there, probably owned by a friend or a disciple that followed him. It was probably hedged in some kind of way, fenced in. And Jesus often met with his disciples there, especially the last week of his life. You can find that in John chapter 18. And that's the reason uh, Judas knew exactly where to go is because he had been there praying with Jesus and fellowshipping with Jesus. So that's where we are. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's read the Word of God, uh, Matthew 26, 36 and following. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, Watch and pray so that your soul, that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body, the flesh, is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. Then he came back. He again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Arise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The word of God to God's people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for... Struggling in the garden. Thank you for inspiring Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke to write about it. May we understand it. May we love Jesus more because of it. May we be more faithful. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. If you were happened to want to see uh, Leonardo da Vinci's great work, the Last Supper, you would have to go to Milan. It is painted on a wall in a monastery. And it is uh, not like some of the copies that you see. It is 30 feet by 19 feet. That's the size of my den. It's huge. Da Vinci was a very talented uh, artist. He loved angles. 
he loved to see where things were symmetrically drawn, and he used a nail and string to do some of those things. He also used some uh, unique uh, painting material for his frescoes. Most people used the water-based paint, and he was using an oil-based paint, which turned out to be a mistake because it didn't penetrate the, the plaster as well. But when you go there, you will marvel at uh, the detail. You would marvel at uh, Judas. Judas is there on the left as we look at it. He's kind of in the dark. You see shadows there. It looks like he's clutching a, a money bag, uh, like maybe he's already gotten the 30 pieces of silver, but probably because he was the treasurer. And then you can read his notes and find out what else he did. But what you would do, you would be amazed at the skill of Leonardo da Vinci. You would be amazed. You would stand in wonder and awe. You would not come away saying, I want to be a better painter. The purpose of you going was just to be in awe. That's what this passage is today. You know, too many times we look at this passage and we load people down with guilt. Can't you pray an hour? Can't you stay awake an hour at night and pray or get up an hour early and pray? Can't you pray persistently? Can't you pray like Jesus? Are you more like uh, James and John and Peter and fall asleep on the Lord and isn't your flesh weak and we load people down with, with guilt? Those things are, are, are true. But I think what we have before us is a painting for the eyes of faith to see and be lost in wonder, love, and praise that our Savior loved us so much that he was willing to drink this cup to the very end. And so what I want you to do today, I want you to see Jesus' humanity. I want you to see Jesus' struggle and his submission to the will of God. I want you to see his humanity. You know, we don't do enough about the humanity of Christ in the year. <clears throat> we do that at Christmas. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, hell incarnate, deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, God with us. And we make sure people know that it is God with us. It is not uh, somebody who looks like God. It's not somebody that looks like a man. It's not the highest form of all creation. It's not a person that's half God, half man. It's not a man filled with the Holy Spirit that it is a person in the person of Christ that's fully God and fully man. It is an incomprehensible understanding that we face. The hypostatic union, they call it. Giving it a title that we don't not understand either. But we watch Jesus through the Gospels and he walks on the water and he calms the storm and he raises the dead and he feeds the 5,000 and he uh, raises uh, a paralytic so that he walks and he, he heals 10 lepers, he heals blind people. He, he does all this stuff and we say, wow, that's, this has got to be God. But sometimes we forget to look at his humanity, that he was weary. Before he calmed the storm, he was asleep in the boat because he was so tired. 
You know, you've been there, dog tired, you know, somebody else is driving and you're just snoring away. Or if you're driving, hope you're not snoring away. But anyway, Jesus was tired. Jesus wept. He grieved at Lazarus' tomb. Jesus was frustrated, a holy frustration at the disciples' slowness to understand. He was righteously angry when uh, he drove the money changers out of the temple. And in those things, you see his humanity. But you probably see it clearer here than anywhere else. And when you look at this passage, it's unbelievable, the language. I've got before me uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's uh, description of that, and I underlined all the emotional words, and there are five different words, and some of the words are repeated uh, different times. He began to be sorrowful and troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow. Uh, he was in agony or anguish. He sweat like drops of blood. He, they were exhausted with sorrow, overwhelmed with sorrow, deeply distressed in sorrow. And in that word sorrow is a Greek word, lupeo. And lupeo means sorrow. But if you put a peri in front of it, a peri is like goes around. And so what the word is saying is Jesus is surrounded by sorrow. The idea is Jesus is engulfed in sorrow. He's in a dark, dark place. And he's in a dark place emotionally. B.B. Uh, Warfield, who was a theologian, taught theology at Princeton when Princeton was conservative, which was a long time ago, uh, 1900s. He died in 1921. But B.B. Warfield wrote an article on the emotional life of Christ. And he says this, The primary idea of troubled is a loathing aversion perhaps not unmixed with despondency, while Jesus' self-description as overwhelmed with sorrow expresses a sorrow, or perhaps we would better translate as a mental pain, a distress which hems him in on every side, Perry. That is to say, the strain of his mental suffering. And this is another quote he made. It will fit somewhere else in the sermon as well, but read it now. The anguish which Jesus endured in the garden when he had to make his final choice demanded so much strength from him in body and soul that an angel from heaven was sent to strengthen him so as to enable him to complete the suffering and not die before his task was accomplished. That B.B. Warfield goes on to say, although Jesus died on the cross, he might not have died because of the cross, but because of a broken heart dying for his people. What was Jesus so afraid of, disturbed by, troubled by, deeply distressed by, in anguish by, in agony? What was it? Was it just the cross? That was a terrible prospect of death, the cross. You know, he, he knew uh, because he was God what was before him, he told them that they would betray him and he would die. And he understood that he'd be lifted up on a, on a tree and he understood the cross. He understood that he would be nailed to the cross after he had been whipped and scourged and carried the cross as far as he could. And he'd be lifted up between heaven and earth uh, naked 
and ashamed and people mocking him and gawking at him. And he knew that, and certainly as a human, he had to have some shrinking back of that. But that is not what he asked to be delivered from. He asked to be delivered from the cup, the cup that he had to drink, the cup in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Psalms, uh, and Jeremiah all refers to a cup of wrath, that God has poured for him a cup of wrath. And what Jesus saw was that when he died, what was before him was the wrath of God. He had never approached God clothed in sin. He had never known anything but intimacy and love with his Father and fellowship. And he understood that when he went to the cross and he drunk that cup, that he would be plunged into outer darkness. It got dark. He would be separated from God, which is hell. He goes, forsaken. My God, my God, uh, why have you forsaken me? He was sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin. He was a sinner. He was sin in essence. He took away the wrath of God for sin. He was the atonement lamb. All the Just think about it like this. Let's take all the sin in all the world of God's people, from Adam and Eve to whoever is living now, or take the, everybody who's ever going to live, and you squeeze all of that punishment, all that wrath, into this one moment that Jesus is hanging on the cross, and you pour it out on him. That's what he feared. He feared being separated from God and being the object of God's wrath. But we celebrate that, really. Surely, he took our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. We consider him stricken by God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, what you're to take away from this is that Jesus' love for you is so great that he was willing to drink that cup for you. You know, a lot of people, you know, when we were going through the Apostles' Creed, we talked about descended into hell, and a lot of people, why don't we take that out of there? People don't understand it. Well, it gives us an opportunity to explain it to them. That whatever hell was and is, separated from God, plunged in outer darkness, uh, despair, de desperation, Jesus did it. And he did it for us, his people. Oh, what wondrous love is this, the choir sang. What wondrous love is this? Can you even comprehend that, you know, don't put all of Jesus' suffering physically on the cross. Don't wait to Good Friday. But even consider now he, he died for, for you. And there is some spillover 
That means that if Jesus was fearful about what lay ahead of him, then maybe it's okay that you're being fearful about what's ahead of you. You see, so many times we preachers give you so much guilt. If Jesus was in deep anguish because of the dark providence of God that was about to fall over him, I think it's okay that we every now and then look at the path that God has us on and we, we mourn, we, 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 we struggle, we, we are in anguish about it. But we have to do what Jesus did, is we have to take it to the Lord in prayer. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care that bids me at my Father's throne, makes all my wants and wishes known. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief. In your troubles, sorrows, distresses, fear and anxieties, take them to Jesus. Jesus struggled. Jesus had, in Luke it calls it an agony. <clears throat> the word agony means a fierce conflict. And the conflict was between the will of his father and his will. Now, before you take up stones to throw them at me, Jesus had a will. To be a fully God, God has a will, so Jesus had to have a will. And to be fully man is to have a will, so Jesus had a will. Had a something he wanted to be done. And... In this moment, he struggled with the will of God. He struggled with what God wanted him to do, and he asked, is it possible, is it possible that there's another way? You know, I don't want to belittle, you know, the, the, the prayer here, but do you imagine that Jesus talked about the possibilities? God, what about an angel? What about Gabriel? Have you thought about Gabriel? There are other angels up there. What about two or three angels? What about 10,000 angels? What about... It's not possible. It's not possible for sinners to be saved unless Jesus went to the cross and took the wrath of God for them. Jesus went the second time. This time, it's not a positive request. It's a negative realization if it's not possible, not my will, but your will be done. So he's, Knox Chamberlain says, you see how even in the mind of Christ here, the prayer is not just mere repetition, but there seems to be progression. And then he prayed again a third time, and he prayed the same prayer, it says. And what God told him was basically, there's no other good enough to take away sin. There's no other good enough. There's no other option. We quote a lot of different people in here, and Sam, like he went to seminary with us, you know. He lived a thousand years before us, a thousand years A.D., and Anselm was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and his great work was a Why God Became Man. And why this was necessary. It was necessary for God to become man because man had sinned. The debt was mankind, God's elect, God's people, God's church. And they had a debt like the 
parable, a debt that we couldn't pay. And God was the only one that could pay it. And so in order for man to pay his debt to God, God had to become man in the person of Jesus to pay this debt. And Jesus was struggling with this to the point that he said, I'm struggling to the point of death. Struggling to the point of death. In other words, I've heard some of you so upset. You say, I'm going to have a stroke. I'm going to have a heart attack. I don't know what I'm going to do. And here we hear Jesus saying, I'm, I'm troubled to death. And God sent an angel to strengthen him so that he would be strengthened body and soul. You know, we've seen angels before in the life of Jesus. We saw it in the time when he was in the wilderness. The angels came and fed him. We see angels uh, in transfiguration. We see, we see angels, but... Uh, this angel came and strengthened Jesus. It's amazing that without the angel coming, there's a possibility that Jesus could not have endured the cross. That's incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. When you look at this passage, you are thinking, uh, is there any spillover for me? You know, is there any spillover for me? Uh, you know I love Ralph Davis. If you had, to, had me to pick the, my favorite preacher of all time, it would be Ralph Davis. But Ralph says this. He always talks about overflow or spillover. He said, but isn't the pattern of Jesus' experience something that reoccurs in the life of his people? How often they find heaven's resources suddenly appear for earth's emergencies. As with Jesus, not to give them escape from the emergencies, but rather endurance to ride them out. This Christ got an angel, but sometimes we get Christ and his grace to strengthen us. Rabbi Duncan, who taught Hebrew in seminary, he was so good that they call him Rabbi, he went to a friend's study one day, and the friend was preaching on angels. And Rabbi Duncan said, are you going to preach about my favorite angel? And his friend says, what's your favorite angel? He says, he's anonymous. He's the one that strengthened Jesus so that he could drink the cup and die for my sins. You see, when God says no to our requests, and doesn't remove them, eliminate them, he gives us the energy to endure them. Isn't this very similar, a spillover into the life of Paul? He prayed three times that the thorn be taken from him. We don't know what the thorn was, but God says, no. My grace is sufficient for you. He gave him grace. And that's what God will give us as we struggle. He'll not always give us what we want, but he'll give us what we need to endure. And then the last thing I want you to look at, I want you to look at uh, his submission. He says, not my will, but thy will be done. It sounds better than the King James, doesn't it? 
I mean, you know, certain passages just, you need the King James, you know, 23rd Psalm, John 14, you know, those, those beautiful passages, you memorized them when you were a kid probably, or I did, in the King James. Not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus didn't just tack this on. It wasn't just, okay, over and out, you know, I've done all I can, your will be done. No, he, he willingly went to the cross. He didn't go begrudgingly. He didn't go pouting. He didn't go with bitterness. He went with a willingness that's unbelievable. He went knowing. He submitted knowing. Here's what uh, Knox Chamberlain said. Knox Chamberlain was a professor at RTS. I never had Knox. Uh, Knox taught uh, Hebrew, taught uh, Greek at Bellhaven, and he went back to RTS in our class to learn Hebrew so he could teach Hebrew. So pretty impressive. But anyway, Knox says this. Significantly, the striving prayer if possible, take this cup from me, comes before the submitting prayer, yet not as I will, but you will. The submitting rises from the striving. The striving helps to bring about the submitting. Submission is still all the more meaningful having arisen out of a struggle that resists being submissive. That's a complicated quote, maybe, but he said it means more that Jesus really struggled and then submitted. Here's what Donald McLeod says. The wonder of Christ's love for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew and didn't know in his human nature, and yet he willingly took damnation lovingly. What a Savior. What a Savior. Jesus still had the ability after this prayer to turn away from the will of God. He reminds the authorities this. If I wanted to, I'd call a legion of angels. I could stop this. You know, the Roman army and Sanhedrin, they have no power. But Jesus lays down his life for his friends. And so what Jesus did was he, he prayed himself into submission. You know, he prayed through the struggle. You know, how many times have you done that? I, I hate to use myself as an illustration because it seems so trite. But uh, in 2010, when I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, some of you had had uh, that experience they cannot do surgery to six weeks after the biopsy. Those were a long six weeks. I think the first person I called was Butler. I struggled with the will of God. And I have to admit that, you know, some people would come and, you know, they would pray the right thing, that I would be well, but not my will, but thy will be done in... I think I even told Sarah, I said, I don't want people to pray that. Pray that I get well. Pray that it'll be contained. But I came to see the goodness of God that, you know, that early detection eliminated that. 
and I saw my heart was not completely understanding. C.S. Lewis says there are only two types of people in the world, people who pray, my will be done or thy will be done. And what we do is we see that uh, prayer, we think, is, is getting God to do our will. But it's really not. A silly illustration was just think if you were out in a boat and you were away from the island and somebody threw you a rope. And uh, so you're in the, do you pull the boat towards the island or the island towards the boat? God's will is the island. And prayer is pulling you into alignment, into his rest, into his harbor of peace. And so, you know, you take this passage and maybe I could say, you know, pray, pray harder, pray more. Don't sleep and pray, you know, your flesh is willing. But what I want you to do is I want you to look at your Savior today and realize what wondrous love is this, that he drank that cup for me. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for the cup that uh, the Son was willing to drink. And because he drank it, that we will know nothing but the cup of blessing that will be at the Lamb's high feast. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for showing us your humanity and for encouraging us that you are a sympathetic high priest who has endured all that we have, and yet you're without sin. And so I pray that as people face some difficult days ahead of them, I pray that they would uh, struggle and find that peace, and that peace that passes understanding. And you'd give them grace, strengthen them. Uh, maybe not with an angel, you could do that, but strengthen them by your grace and spirit. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.